Welcome to Do You Have Scripture for That? This is Clay Garrison. Today we're going to start a new series. This this won't interrupt other episodes uh, or other things that we're going to be discussing, but I, I do want to go through uh, this short series, and what we're going to be doing is going through the book of Habakkuk. So you might be thinking, what in the world, the book of Habakkuk, that's a you know, just a random book to go through. Well, I have two purposes. This, this this series that we're going to go through is going to serve two different purposes. The first purpose is to put on display a method of Bible study which is going to take our view of inspiration seriously. So if you remember the, the second episode, we talked about inspiration, how the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is breathed out by God. And so all the Scripture has one author behind it all, and that, that being the Holy Spirit, God Himself. So we see uh, that that view of inspiration that we're holding to here on this podcast. And so I want to show a method of Bible study that is going to t- that is going to take uh, that view of inspiration seriously. And you're going to see what I mean by that as we get into this study. Um, a second purpose that I want to deal with is to kind of help address things that are going on uh, with current events and and really things that that have occurred all throughout history. Uh, but sometimes we need reminders, and some of those current current events that I'm talking about is um, you think about the current deal with Russia invading Ukraine and all of the thoughts and opinions and things that people have about that. Um, I'm not really going to get into the any politics and things of that sort of nature, but what I do want to address is how do we deal with God's sovereignty and Jesus' kingship over the nations in light of these current events. So... You know, we have our detailed analysis of what's going on, but in the grand scheme of things, what is God doing among the nations? What is He accomplishing? Uh, what purpose is He using all of these things for? And I think the book of Habakkuk answers that very well, and we also can benefit from understanding where Habakkuk is coming from as Americans and uh, living in the, the country that we live in. So, this little series is going to serve those two purposes, hopefully, and uh, help us to address that question from the perspective of, do we have scripture for that? And I hope that uh, by the end, we can say, yes, we do. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we're going to go straight through the book of Habakkuk, but we're uh, in this episode, we're going to look at the first four verses of the first chapter. So let's go ahead and read that. Uh, chapter 1. Of Habakkuk verses 1 through 4 and again I'm reading this in the ESV it said it reads this way the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong destruction and violence are before me strife and contention arise so the law was paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so those are the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. And so this, we're, we're just going to break this down verse by verse, and we're going to go look at these phrases. And I want, to, I want to try to show you a method of, of how we can study our Bible to help come to an understanding of, of what's going on in passages. And so... Um, if you're using the ESV, for example, like say you downloaded the ESV Bible app um, on your phone or you have the actual Bible, you're going to have cross-references. And most Bibles, most study Bibles, um, and, and, and really you don't even have to have a study Bible, but most Bibles have cross-references in them. And you'll know that you have those if you uh, look at your verse and usually you'll see small letters that are right above or right beside words up near the top like a superscript. And you can look at those and say, at the beginning of Habakkuk, you have an A up there. Then you can look at the bottom of your Bible and, and find A for the first verse of chapter 1 of Habakkuk. And it'll give you verses that are cross-referenced to that. And what you're going to see is that there's similarities between those verses. Or there's, there's something that's connecting that verse to something else in Scripture. And so, as I said before, you know we're taking this method of inspiration that we have this this view of inspiration seriously because if all of scripture is God's word 
then that means if we're confused about something that God says in one place, then there's other places that we can look in Scripture to help us understand that. So as we begin, I'm going to try to show how we can do that. So this first verse, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And so what, what does oracle mean? What is that talking about? Well, I have a cross-reference on this. Um, I have, I'm on my phone using the, the ESV Bible app. There's an A beside the oracle, so I click on that A, and it says, See Nahum 1.1. And so it's, it's super easy on my phone because it, it gives me a, um, like a hyperlink almost to go to Nahum 1.1. So I go there, and I read that. It says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So we learn that in the book of Nahum, at the beginning of that book, it's also worded that there's an oracle. And, and this is a little bit more specific. It tells us that it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. So if you ever go read the book of Nahum, you know that it's a book that's an oracle about Nineveh, about the, the, the wicked city of Nineveh, uh, and God bringing judgment on them, on the Assyrians, and their capital, Nineveh. And we get a little bit more... Uh, of an idea of what an oracle means from this verse because it says it also says the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So we get a connection between oracle and vision. So there's a connection between seeing things, things, seeing visions, and having an, an oracle or receiving an oracle. So that's something that helps us out. Now, to take this even further, there's also a cross-reference in Nahum 1.1. On an oracle. So, whereas we were looking at Habakkuk 1 and it only gave us one cross reference, now we're connected to this other idea, Nahum 1 1, and we see an oracle there. And in that cross reference, it says we can also look at Isaiah 13 1. And so, if I were to jump over there and look, it says the oracle, this is Isaiah 13, chapter 13, verse 1, it says the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And so once again, we have this idea of an oracle, which is seen, seen with the eyes, seen in a vision concerning Babylon. So what can we gather from all of these verses about an oracle? If you know, if maybe you knew what an oracle was to start off with, but if you didn't, then you could use these cross references to help you understand, and we could come to the conclusion after looking at all of these verses that an oracle seems to be a word from the Lord concerning a certain topic, individual, or nation, which comes in the form of a vision. It's something that is seen, something that is seen by a prophet. And so this is closely connected to the office of Habakkuk as a prophet. And we get that from the first verse of, of Habakkuk. It says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And so we, you know, through our general reading of Scripture, uh, we could get that Habakkuk was a prophet, and that prophets tended to be given visionary um, revelation from God, visionary words of God to tell the people, and that these things were sometimes called oracles. So early on in Israel's history, we also know that prophets were known as seers. So how would we know that? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9. This is during the process of... Um, kind of a backstory on Saul before he became king and we get this helpful information uh, whenever they're talking about needing to go find a prophet somebody to help them find their uh, find their cattle they say this in, in verse 9 it says formerly in Israel when a man went to inquire of God he said come let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer so that's S-E-E-R, a seer. So what we have here is this idea of a prophet being a person who sees, who is a seer, who sees the word of God in the form of visions, oracles, things of that nature. So verse 1 of Habakkuk doesn't give us the subject of the oracle, but we do get a, if, if we look at a quick survey of the book, and I, whenever you go to jump into a Bible study or, or to study a book of the Bible, Read through the whole thing. Go through and just do do a quick reading so you know the full 
scale of, of what exactly is going on and then dive into the individual verses so that you kind of have a context of what you're looking at. Uh, so while verse 1 you know, isn't like Nahum or the passage from Isaiah that tells us what the oracle is about, it doesn't take long for us to look through the book of Habakkuk to see that it shows us it, it's about Judah and the Chaldeans. I mean, if you just look down at verse 6 of chapter 1, uh, the Lord says, uh, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And so we, we learn that Habakkuk is living in Judah during the period of the Babylonians, just before the Babylonians come uh, to, siege, uh, to siege Jerusalem, to siege uh, the, the country of Judah, uh, to bring those attacks, the judgment of God against them. So that's the context of this book. And so just by looking at that first verse and understanding what is an oracle, let me use these cross-references, let me look at God's Word in other places to help me see what an oracle actually is, and then now let me look at the idea of, of him being a prophet. What does it mean to be a prophet? And what, what has that meant throughout the history of the, of the Bible leading up to this? And that helps us understand what is going to be communicated in this book. So I hope that's starting to get us in that mindset. So now let's move on to verse 2 and actually get into the, the meat of this book. Verse 2 says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. So that's the first statement we're going to look at. And there's, once again, there's a cross-reference that we can look at. So in my translation that I'm using, if I click on the B just before how long, I get a couple of references, a couple of cross-references. Psalm 13.1 is the first one that pops up. And Psalm 13.1 reads like this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And so we see this similarity. There's this, this similar language. And so what should be clicking in our mind is maybe I should read the entirety of Psalm 13 and see what happens in that psalm so that I can maybe take some of that and apply it to what I'm reading now. And so if we keep reading, Psalm 13 is only six verses. Uh, I'm going to keep reading. Verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so what we see is in, in Psalm 13, in, that in, in the entire chapter, this cry of how long is seen as this genuine outcry for the Lord to keep his promises. Uh, the Lord, there's, there's times when you go through challenging things, when you go through trials and hardships, and you, you're wondering where is the Lord at? What is going on? How... When is, when is the Lord going to intervene and act? When is, he, when is the Lord going to act on his promises and remain faithful to what he has promised? And it's the, these psalms and these cries from some of the prophets is a genuine outcry of, for the Lord to keep his promises, to keep what he said that he was going to do and to not turn back on his promises. So the present circumstances... You know, they, they make it seem like the Lord has forgotten his people and his enemies are the ones who appear to have the victory. But in Psalm 13, David ends all of that by going back to God's steadfast love and salvation. He, he always goes back to that. Even as, as desperate as he sounds at the beginning of that, he ends by saying, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I'm trusting in your promises. I'm trusting in your faithfulness to do what you have said that you will do. And my heart is going to rejoice in your salvation because I know that you're going to accomplish it. And the reason that I read this whole chapter is that the book of Habakkuk follows the same progression. So we see this in the first, in the first verse or the second verse. You know, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So there's this desperation, there's this brokenness that Habakkuk has over what's going on around him. And we're going to get into what is going on around him. But there's this brokenness over this. And 
we tend to get in the same situation. Living in America, living in a country that had roots, uh, that had foundations that were built on God's Word, on biblical revelation, um, as much as we have secular forces that would like to fight against that, you know, that's what our country was built on. That's what people came to this new world to try to build was a civilization based on God's word, uh, grounded in his word. And whenever we see how far we have turned from that, how far we have rejected um, what God has for us, the, his word, you know, it's, it's a sad thing. It's something that makes us cry out, how long, O Lord? How long will you continue to allow this to happen, Lord? Intervene. Do something. We feel that. We know what he's going through. So what's another cross-reference that we have for this? Uh, I'm going to click on it again. Besides Psalm 13.1, you have Psalm 89.46. And this is what 89.46 says. How long, O Lord? So here's the same question. Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? I'm going to keep reading a couple more verses. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which, by your faithfulness, you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord and with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. So once again, we hear this cry of, How long? How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself? But then it's followed by appeals to the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we get a pattern of whenever we feel this distress, that it's it's all right for us to feel this distress. It's, it's all right for us to question, Lord, how long? How long are you going to make us wait on this? But we can't remain there. We always have to go back to trusting and appealing to the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. So in this passage, the psalmist brings up the mocking which God's people suffer from the mouths of all the nations. And the Lord is asked to intervene for the sake of his name. And so whenever we make our pleads to the Lord, Whenever we give our pleadings, our supplications, these prayers that we're lifting up to the Lord, we should bring these things up to God. We should bring up that His that His enemies seem to have the victory, that it looks like the church is going to be crushed under the weight of its enemies, and we should appeal to the Lord to keep His promises, not for our sake, but for the sake of His name, because the Lord will not allow His name to be trampled upon, and He will act on behalf of His name. And we see that time and time again throughout Scripture. So, so that should be our our plea, our cry. So do you see how as we're, as we're walking through this passage and we're seeing all of these cross-references, it's helping us to get a grasp of um, what is Habakkuk really going through? What is, how can we develop this idea throughout all of Scripture so it's a well-rounded idea? And so that's one way that you can use these cross-references. So let's let's keep our study going. <clears throat> the end of uh, verse 2, it says, Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. So what's our cross-reference there? I'm going to click on C, and we have Micah 6.12. So here's another minor prophet, another prophet around the same time period as Habakkuk. And this is what he says. Your rich men are full of violence. So there's a there's our word connection there, violence, full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So here we have this idea that there is a violence that is prevailing in Israel, Judah, and it's particularly among the rich. And if we look at the verse right before, we see shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag full of deceitful weights? So we see this idea of these rich people who are full of violence and they're violent because they're bringing about death and bloodshed on the basis of wicked scales and deceitful weights. So they're swindling people out of their money, taking their livelihood, and it's ultimately leading to their death. And we can see James in the book of James in uh, chapter 5 echoing the same idea of uh, these, these 
uh, James cries out, you know, woe to the rich, you know, withholding, withholding wages from the workers. And so we see this same idea, you know, that they're bringing blood on their own hands by withholding wages from their workers. And in the same way, back in Micah, you have these rich people who are bringing blood on their hands by swindling people out of their money by using deceitful scales, deceitful weights, um, basically trading, trading and bartering their uh, their goods deceitfully. And so there's violence. And in Habakkuk, he's saying, "I'm crying, Lord, I'm crying to you, violence, and you will not save. You know, why aren't you ending this violence? Why aren't you stopping this? Don't you hate violence? Why aren't you doing anything?" And so Habakkuk is no doubt seeing this same type of violence around him, and he's asking the Lord do something about this sinfulness, but yet the Lord hasn't answered yet. And so Habakkuk is just, you know, he's just laying laying himself bare. He's, he, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know why the Lord hasn't done anything, and he's in a state of desperation. And we can see that in our in our own day, looking around. We see the blood that is on our country's hands uh, from abortion, I mean, millions and millions and millions of innocent lives taken for the sake of convenience, and you know there, there's blood on our hands. And as believers, we cry out, "Lord, how long? When are you going to do something about this? Uh, when are you going to bring judgment on the evildoer? When is this going to happen? Lord, act on behalf of Your name. Be the just and righteous God that that You say that You are." And if that sounds, if that sounds uh, too bold, or if that sounds insulting towards God to you, uh, then we should, you know, maybe consider passages that talks about the privilege that the Lord has bought for us, that that Christ has bought for us, you know, to be able to enter into this throne room, to to be able to enter before the Lord, and to be able to voice these concerns. That, that Christ has purchased that for us, not for us to just abuse, but for us to really bring real real stuff before him, uh, real injustices, and bring those things before him and ask, you know, Lord, why is this happening? Um, ultimately, that's not causing us to question our trust in the Lord or to question his sovereignty and what he's doing, but it allows us to be human and to voice these frustrations that we have with injustice because there is a righteous anger that we can have that is a good thing. So these 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 are the situations that Habakkuk is dealing with, what he's being surrounded with. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and look at the final two verses of this passage. Welcome back. We're going to keep going through this passage. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at verse 3. Habakkuk continues by saying, Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? So let's look at these cross-references once again. So in this first section, we have a cross-reference to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. So let's click on that, and we're going to read it. Jeremiah 9, 2 through 6 says this, Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow, falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And so we get this picture. Once again, we have this this cross-reference from Jeremiah, which is close to the same time period that Habakkuk is speaking in, and we see that Habakkuk has a disgust over the sins of his people. He's facing the same list of sins that Jeremiah is facing. You know, Jeremiah sees oppression heaped up on oppression. We see deceit heaped up upon deceit. There's this constant backbiting and fighting and violence and, and sexual immorality. Just he's, you know, He says the people weary themselves. 
the people wear themselves out from committing iniquity. They get so tired in their life just from committing sins. This is the extent that God's people had departed from God's word, departed from God's law, and it went down this path of sinfulness, this path of foolishness. And he wants to know, Lord, why won't you act to remove sin and punish evildoers? evildoers? Lord, we're supposed to be your people. We're supposed to be pure, holy, set apart. Lord, why don't... Why aren't we pure, holy, and set apart? Why aren't you removing this sin from our midst so that we might be able to walk pure before you? Lord, do something. I want, you know, in, in Habakkuk's mind, he wants to serve the Lord. He knows the Lord. And he doesn't want to be in this community of, of sinfulness going on around him. And so he wants the Lord to act. And in the same way, I'm, I'm sure there's many Christians and you know, who who want to follow the Lord, who want to be obedient to the Lord, but yet they're surrounded by this culture of sinfulness and it grieves them. They they want the Lord to act. They want to live in a Christian culture. Um, I find it hard to believe that there's really Christians out there who are happy living in a secular culture that that's disgusted with the idea of a God that could that would create them. You know, that's, that that would just baffle my mind. I imagine that um, every Christian who has a renewed heart and a renewed mind greatly desires to live in a Christian culture, not a mainstream pop Christian culture, but a culture that has been radically shaped by Scripture itself. I'm sure most believers would want that, would want to live in that. And so whenever we face the sinful culture that's around us now, we we ask the Lord, Lord, why don't you do something about this? Change these people's hearts. Change uh, bring, bring judgment if necessary, Lord, but do something. And we, we face that same thing that Habakkuk's going through. And whenever he asks God, well, you know, why do you idly look at wrong? We have to remember the context. Habakkuk is speaking through his frustration of rampant sinfulness that's going on around him. From his perspective, he feels, he feels as if God is idly looking at wrong. Habakkuk knows he's a prophet. He's, he's among God's counsel, you know, of, of, of people that he's revealing his will to. Um, he knows that God is not idly looking at wrong, but he's venting his frustration knowing that the Lord is, is doing something through all of this, and he's, he's venting that frustration that he's having to be surrounded by all of this sinfulness because it, it can get depressing. I mean, just look at the life of Jeremiah the prophet. I mean, he's... He, he was known as the weeping prophet, or he, you know, he, he wanted to completely quit. He tried to quit, but then the Lord wouldn't allow him. He, you know, he could, the, the words just came out of him. He couldn't take it. And so we see that being surrounded by sinfulness in this way can be depressing, can bring you down, and there's this outcry for the Lord to do something. So let's continue on. Uh, the next section says this, destruction and violence are before me strife and contention arise so we don't necessarily have a cross reference here there is a there is a letter here but it says see verse 2 above and so what that's saying is go back up to verse 2 because it's got a c here and it's got a c back on verse 2 so it's the exact same cross reference as violence from verse 2 and so he's he's continuing this idea of the destruction and violence that are before him and we see the same destruction in our day. When people depart from obedience to God's law, destruction, violence, strife, and contention are the results. And that's what people don't get is that we're not serving uh, this arbitrary, made-up God that's just a religion that we like to hold on to that um, just makes our life feel a little better or helps us to deal with hard things that go on in life. We are serving the God of creation. And whenever we are obedient to his law, we are abiding in life. That, that God's word brings life. So whenever we're obedient to that, we're going to have an abundant life. That's what Jesus is talking about. I, I want you to have life and have it abundantly. Is that if you go with God, if you follow his ways, you're going to have life. But by the same token, if you reject his ways, if you reject his word, reject his law, it's going to result in death. Is going to result in destruction and strife, contention, all of these things. 
And that's what we see in our culture right now. If you're a Christian living in Western civilization, you should feel the exact same as Habakkuk when you witness the destruction of culture around you. I mean, we are literally self-destructing right now because of our rejection of God's word. We can't even decide if someone is a, a male or a female. We, you know, that we just, we just make, we just make up all of these um, identity labels, and you can be whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter what God has created you to be. It's just you know whatever you want, and we we're just completely destroying the foundations of culture. We're destroying the family. We're undermining parental authority over their family, over their children. Um, the whole feminist movement has destroyed gender roles and the, the purposes that God created men and women for. Uh, the LGBTQ, ABC, all the letters put together uh, has, has completely destroyed uh, what it means to be married, that it, be, it being a covenant before God between a male and a female being brought together to be husband and wife to picture and to, to point forward to this type of the bride of Christ being being united to Christ himself as the head. All of these things that we see in our, in our culture around us and our nature were built on God's word. And we are completely undermining those things. And all it does is bring destruction. If you want to know why there's violence that's rampant, why you can't turn on your news without seeing destruction and death and chaos, it's because we've rejected God's word. Flat, we, we can come up with all of our reasons, all of our sociological, psychological reasonings. Um, we need more education. We need X, Y, Z. It doesn't matter. All of those things are just symptoms of the root cause, which is us rejecting and denying the truth of God's word and our duty to be obedient to it. I want us to look at a passage uh, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 7 verses 23 through 27. I want you to listen to this. It says, forge a chain. And what it's calling to mind is this idea of, of some, you know, symbolizing going away into captivity. Forge a chain, for the, land, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster, rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, and the king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So God will bring nations against the people who fill their land with blood guiltiness. We fit that bill. America fits that bill. Our land is full of blood guiltiness. We have blood on our hands, as I've mentioned before. And we see in this passage of Ezekiel that prophet, priest, and king Every, every level of structure in society all, all fail, and terror is going to fall upon the land, and they will know that he is the Lord, that God is the Lord, he alone. The law is going to, you know, it's going to perish from the mouth of the priest. Like that God's word isn't going to be taught that violence is going to be rampant and widespread. And I'm not talking about some crazy end times thing. I'm talking about a nation that completely turns away from God's word and seeks to follow its own authority, that puts itself in its own authority. And that's, at, at base root, that is what humanism is. Secular humanism is making man God and making man's word authoritative and making our ends the greatest ends to follow. And we try to make these great utopias and they end up being destructive and just full of violence and death. And that, that's what it produces at baseline is death. That's what Adam and Eve's decisions produced was death. That's what sin has always produced is death, separation from God. And so that's what the Lord said he'll, he'll give us over to. If we were to be separate from him, then he'll give us separation. But that separation is going to result in death. So let's go back to Habakkuk. Verse 4. 
So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. And here we have a cross-reference. That's a new one. Micah 7, verse 3 says, Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. And so that might take us a little bit of thought. But the idea behind both the Habakkuk verse and the cross-reference in Micah is that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth because the rich and the influential pay off the prince and the judge. So you have this idea of the prince and the judge are representing uh, your, your civil magistrates, your civil authority. Those who are responsible for wielding God's sword of vengeance are being bought off to wield the sword on behalf of the powerful rather than God's law. So these people, these judges, these princes, they're supposed to be using God's word as their standard. They're supposed to be punishing evildoers on the basis of God's word as a standard. But instead of using that word, God's law, as the standard, they're just taking bribes. So whoever can pay them the most, they become the standard. And so the, the people who have the power of the sword that God's given to take the life of individuals who are you know, commit a capital crime, they're using that sword on behalf of the powerful. So the powerful are paying them off so that they can become even more powerful and accumulate more money and all of these things. And that's what Micah's getting at uh, in, in that verse. You know, the great man, that's what he's talking about, the rich, the powerful, the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. And right before you have the prince and the judge who are asking for a bribe. You know, they're, they're willing to take a bribe uh, to do whatever the, the great man wants them to do. And so what is the result? They weave it together. So they make their plan work. They bring it about. The great man pays them off, and then they look out for the great man using the sword. And once again, we could get into that, but we see that all the time. It doesn't take you much uh, snooping around and looking to see those sorts of things going on in our society. So we won't get too bound up in that, but let's look at the next section. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. What is our cross-reference? So we're going to look at that. Job 21.7 Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? And so if you were to read this whole chapter, you have Job who's questioning, um, why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? That's At base, that's what he's saying. Why does it seem like the wicked prosper while the righteous are the ones who perish? Lord, if, if, if your word is true, if you... Um, if you bless the righteous and curse the wicked, then shouldn't the righteous be the ones who prosper and the wicked should you know, immediately face the curses of their wickedness? And you can read the book of Job to figure out the answer to that. I'm not going to get into all that. But Job is asking that similar question. Why does it seem that the wicked are prosperous and have the advantage over the righteous? Lord, what are you doing? How, how does this work? Um, you know, the law seems to be... Or, or, the wicked seem to surround the righteous. They're, they're prosperous. They're all around us. Um, they're, they look like they're about to overcome us. Lord, what are you doing? How, how is this fitting into your plan? Do you not have great plans for the righteous? How does this work? Let's look at another cross-reference for this passage. Jeremiah chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. The, the cross-reference says verse 1, but if you keep reading, you'll see there's some relevance to verses 1 through 4. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. I mean, that's a, that is a verse right there, is it not? Think through that. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. How often do you go to the Lord and just complain about things? I mean, you know, sometimes we think that we, we enter into prayer with the Lord, that we have this high, mighty attitude uh, that we have to that we have to hold ourselves aloof whenever we're praying to the Lord and, and act fancy and things like that. But Jeremiah is talking about just bringing complaints to the Lord, like just complaining to him about things. But yet in the midst of that, the Lord is righteous. Let's keep going. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? So here's the same question he's asking. Uh, Jeremiah goes on. He says, you plant them. And they take root. They grow and produce fruit. So he's saying, you know, Lord, you're the one that's, that's planting them, that's causing them to grow, that's causing them to prosper. Lord, why are you doing this? And then listen to this, the end of 
verse 2, he says, You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. So these people are people who confess the Lord, who, who talk about the Lord a lot. But when it comes down to it, the Lord is far from their heart. You know, the, these aren't real believers. They just It's just by word, by mouth. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Now listen to this. Put them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every tree wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. I mean, so <laughs> Jeremiah is saying, Lord, you know me. You know my heart. You know that... Um, that I'm not just a, a word only or a name only believer, but that I truly do believe you from my heart. And then he asks for the Lord to take these evil people who, who take the Lord's name on their lips, but he's far from their heart, to take them and set them apart for the day of slaughter, to pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. And so you have very strong language from Jeremiah that asking for the Lord to bring judgment on these people, that the Lord would show his righteousness whenever Jeremiah brings his complaints, that the Lord would be righteous to act and to judge and to, to be that judge over the earth. And so as we consider all of these cross-references, these things that we looked at and look at these first four verses of Habakkuk, our overall picture of what we're getting at is that Habakkuk is overwhelmed at the sinfulness of the nation of Judah around him. I mean, he there is rampant sin, and these are supposed to be the people of God. These are supposed to be the people who not only take the name of the Lord on their lips, but are, are worshiping the Lord with their hearts, and they are far from that. We do not see that in the people of, of Israel, the people of Judah, right before the destruction that comes from Babylon. That's not what we see. So how do we apply that to us? How do we apply this this frustration, I, you know, I've been hitting on this the whole time, but how do we apply this frustration that Habakkuk is feeling? Well, we should recognize our nation whenever we read these words, and we should see that lawlessness is rampant, and even the laws that are set in place by our government reflect lawlessness. So whenever I say that lawlessness is rampant, <clears throat> we need to separate in our minds different types of lawlessness. Sometimes whenever we read God's Word, and it says lawlessness, we have a tendency to just think in our context that we're thinking about people who are breaking our laws. Whereas when the Bible's talking about lawlessness, it's talking about people who are breaking God's laws. And so there is a circumstance when you can be following the laws of your nation and breaking the law of God. And there's also times when you can be obeying the law of God and breaking the laws of your nation. And so we kind of have to keep those things in mind, especially when you don't live in a nation that's basing their laws on God's laws. So we have to keep those things in our mind. So we need to see that right now there's plenty of people in America who are abiding by the laws of America who, who couldn't be arrested for any crime in America, but they are guilty according to God's law. And they are living in rampant lawlessness. And we have to notice that. We have to see that or we're not going to understand why God is bringing judgment on us as a nation. We see God is, God is mocked in the streets and destruction and violence are increasing all around us. Um, <clears throat> that used to be something that, that we would say happens in the cities. Like that's where all this destruction and violence is, is in the cities. But we see that spreading outward, you know, into suburbs and even into country areas, uh, rural areas. You know, we, we see all of that spreading out so that we see our country is becoming lawless and violent and destructive and not to mention sexually immoral, which has been just on a rampage for the past 60, 70 years. As believers, we should expect God's judgment if there is no repentance. That should be our mindset as believers, is that if, if we continue in sin as a body, as a group, as a nation, I think there's significant evidence in Scripture that God looks at nations of peoples. God's the one who sets the bounds of nations. Um, you look at Deuteronomy, I believe it's 32, 
32, 8, and 9, I believe, about God setting the boundaries of the nations. That God is going to hold us accountable as a group so that if we are, as a, as a body of believers, or not believers, but as a body of people who are represented by a civil government, represented um, in all these different ways, that, that if, if we continue in sin and don't repent, then judgment is going to result. And it's not always going to be in a in a necessarily like a one to one ratio or an immediate ratio. You know, it's, we obviously see that because you know there's been over sixty million babies that have been killed by abortion, but we haven't fully seen that judgment yet. Part of that judgment is seen in the the immediate results that we see in people's lives and the way that people live, uh, and what the Lord gives us over to. But as part as a as as far as a wholesale destruction, we haven't seen that yet. But we shouldn't be excluding that from our minds that that's something that's off the table because the Lord will do that. He has done that. Um, and applying this to current situations today, you have Russia invading Ukraine. That's something that's on everyone's minds. Everybody's thinking about it. And everyone's thoughts are Russia's, Russia's bad, Ukraine's good, uh, and that's the whole issue there. But we take... We, we, we completely forget that God uses nations, that God uses war to bring judgment on different people. And we're going to see explicitly in Habakkuk that God can sometimes use an, a nation more evil than you to bring judgment on you. And so I don't know all the history behind the different things that are going on, but I do know that there are some unrighteous lawless activities that have happened in the Ukraine that have been going on and perhaps the Lord might be bringing judgment against them using Russia I mean that's I'm not in the place to say you know with uh, with authority that yes this is what's happening but we can't exclude that because that's what the Bible teaches happens and by the same token we can't say anything about one day Russia or some other country attacking us and bringing God's judgment on us and and them just being the tool in God's hand, much like Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10 was the instrument in God's hand, his instrument of wrath. And so we can't just rule those things out and just have this strict idea of, well, this is a good nation and this is a bad nation uh, and just you know, jump jump bandwagon in, in support of one or the other, we've got to realize that God is sovereign, that Jesus is king over the nations, and that he is working out his rule and reign. He is disciplining and breaking nations and peoples with his rod of iron in order to bring them in subjection to himself. And so that's what we're seeing at work, just like he did to Judah, and just like he he's done to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, to Rome, all of these nations that have, that have, that have rose and, and fell down again, you know, we see that the Lord is at work doing these things, bringing about his purpose, his sovereign plan for history. And so we should take comfort that believers have been in this position before, that God's judgment has come and the remnant was held intact. We see this happening over and over again. We see that there's this this pattern that happens of sinfulness, judgment, remnant, growth, backsliding, sinfulness all over again. And just, you know, off off the top of my head or just, you know, thinking through some things, I feel like we had a cycle of this with the Reformation. You know, you had the the Roman Catholic Church who, you know, just before the Reformation, you know, had some really bad false teachings and you know this idea of paying for forgiveness and things like that and the reformation is is born out of that people turning to God's word having God's word in their own languages and and the 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 five solas and and all of this theology that comes out of the reformation produced so many great things and and I think that there's a direct correlation between that and you have the Puritans who were grounded in that Reformation who came over to the New World to to try to bring about this city on a hill mentality, this this idea of, of, of fulfilling God's word, of being a light to the nations and and the word of God spreading from, from that city on a hill, that culture that was based on God's word. And there's a there was a great growth. 
I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that right after the Reformation, you know, you see all of this this expansion, this growth, this this growth in knowledge, this um, economic growth that that there's so many people who live at such a higher level of of wealth and and all of these things since this grounding in God's word that happened at that point. But since then, there's been backsliding. Uh, you had liberalism in the 1800s, late 1800s, you know, that attacked the integrity of, of God's word and questioned its authority. You had um, the Civil War in the United States that made people question the Bible's ability to govern uh, over nations, to decide issues for nations, especially over the slavery issue. You know, there was a theological battle there. And whenever it came down to a civil war, you know, there were people who questioned the Bible's ability to answer those questions. And so you saw less and less the Bible having a direct influence on how America shaped itself. And so that end result, which was already happening in Europe, resulted in just this decline this decline that's just uh that has continued until today and then you have the sexual revolution of the 1960s where there's just further just throwing off god's authority and so we're seeing this cycle of sinfulness as we're going down and we're waiting on that judgment now so whenever that judgment happens we pray that the lord will preserve this remnant and that out of that remnant there's going to be purity and it's going to result in more growth and so that's our hope, that's our prayer, and I hope that we can learn that from Habakkuk, that we can know that, that there's people that have been there before, and we can take confidence and, and courage and hopefulness in that. So I hope by us studying through this that you'll help, that it'll help you to see how you can use cross-references in your Bible and how you don't have to have tons and tons and tons of Bible study materials for you to be able to get deep in your in the Bible, get deep in the Word, and and learn exactly what it's saying. So I hope that you would that you would use that, that it would be helpful for you. And we're going to keep going through this. We're going to go through this book of Habakkuk. It's three chapters, and I hope that that'll help you. Um, another thing alongside this, you'll notice that not everything I brought up was cross references. That there were sometimes I would bring up passages that weren't included with those cross references, and those things come from us just constantly being in the word it should be a regular practice for us to read through our bibles i mean if 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 we're if we're staking our eternity you know what's going to happen after we die if we're basing all of that on what god's word says and it's that big of a deal then why wouldn't we spend the time to learn exactly what it's saying in its fullness so i would encourage you to find some kind of bible reading plan where you know you don't have to read tons of of, of amount of scripture a day but that's something that you can, on a regular basis, read through all of God's Word so that you're familiar with it. So that whenever you do jump into these individual passages, you can uh, be reminded of ideas that they don't necessarily put in cross-references. But in the meantime, these cross-references can help you to understand how God's Word can interpret God's Word in other places and help you learn those things. So I hope that this was helpful today. Um, I know this this episode was a little longer, but I'm trying to trying to break down God's word and help to explain that so that um, that we can be strengthened through what's going on around us. So I hope you have a good day. Thanks for listening. This has been. Do you have scripture for that? This is Clay Garrison. Hope you have a good day. Bye.